the last two years have changed the way we eat, drink, and socialize. If you work in the food and beverage industry, it's time to think about upgrading your restaurant to a square point of sale system. A smart POS means you'll never miss a sale, can build customer relationships and loyalty, and ensure diners never order the wrong item with real-time menu syncing. Plus, it even helps you improve what happens in the kitchen. The future needs your restaurant. Get there with Square. Visit square.com slash ACAST. From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. The first day we opened the door for business, I was totally scared. I felt a lump in my throat. My mom told me to pray, and I do not pray. But the first morning of the pop-up, I brought in a small statue of Ganesh and prayed. I felt like this was my one chance. I could not fuck it up. Hi, you're listening to Salt and Spine, and I'm your host, Brian Hogan-Stewart. Now, you just heard from Chef Preeti Mystery reading from her first cookbook, Juhu Beach Club. Juhu Beach Club was a restaurant whose formidable years were in Oakland, California, hence the subtitle of the book, Indian Spice, Oakland Soul. It's equal parts cookbook and memoir. Now, you might know Preeti uh, from her time on season six of Top Chef. Now, one of the things I love most about Preeti's book and her restaurants are that they really embody her so fully. She's a queer woman. She's a first-generation immigrant. She's Indian. She's Oaklandish. She's hilarious. She's honest. She's a brilliant chef. And I know I'm not the first person to say we need more voices like hers in the food industry. I'm so happy I sat down with Preeti at the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco to talk cookbooks. Hi, Preeti. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt and Spine today. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Um, so your book is the Juhu Beach Club cookbook. Um, and just to give listeners uh, a sense of what Juhu Beach Club is, mm-hmm. um, Juhu Beach Club was, as you like to refer to it, a mom and mom restaurant in Oakland, California. Um, tell us a little bit about the restaurant before we dive into the cookbook, which, you know, sadly, the restaurant is no more. Sadly to me, who who used to dine for at now. Juhu Beach Club. For, for now. now. We'll, yes. see, we'll see what the future may hold. Okay. We'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> You know, Juhu Beach Club was a, it start, we started as a pop-up in the city, but then the, the brick and mortar that you're speaking of, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, formidable years. Um, we're right. in, uh, Oakland, um, in kind of a quirky space. And I think that that's what really made the space, um, work. It was in a strip mall across from a check cashing place and a pawnbroker. Um, and, you know, we really wanted to ha- have people feel transported once they came inside. And my wife, uh, who is not a professional interior designer, uh, designed the interior. And uh-huh. I think that she was very successful in that. And so I just feel like there was something very like quirky. And, you know, we used to call it, uh, 70s Indian, like living room. Yep. Was kind of the. The vibe we were going for. Yeah. Were we successful, Brian? I, I we feel like so. we achieved I feel that. that. Yeah. I loved the Paisley wallpaper. I loved the, the open bar. It, it felt like a very, um, you ter- use the term living room, but it felt like a very homey place. Yeah. That it was more of like an extension of our, our own home. Right. And when did you know that the Juhu Beach Club, the brick and mortar version also needed to become a cookbook version? When did it need to be translated to paper? Um, you know, I mean, I feel like, even like the first year or two, I, within the first like maybe year to two years, um, I, a lot happened in terms of the evolution of the restaurant. So when we first opened, 
you know, like my pop-up, we really started with a few of these, the pavs, these slider sized different mm-hmm. sandwiches and, right. and fries and, um, this sort of like fun street foodie f- fair. Right. And, and within the first like 12 to 24 months, we sort of grew up a little bit more. Um, and the menu expanded in a lot of different ways. And I think I was really inspired by the neighborhood. I think, you know, most people were not used to having an Indian restaurant that had, that was chef driven, that had a chef that had a name and a face that they could interact with every day. And, um, and so once I had those types of interactions, I also felt inspired to like keep doing new stuff. Um, and so the restaurant menu really evolved in a way where I, you know, I really feel like it allowed me to be for the first time, like cooking my own food. You know, I've been cooking as a chef for over 15 years. So prior I'd been really just cooking, whether it's California cuisine or Italian Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, what have you American, uh, other people's food. Sure. And it really felt like I was hitting this stride in terms of creativity and within the sort of brand and concept of Juhu. Yeah. Um, and, and so then it, you know, it was just something friends and colleagues were kind of saying, uh, I, there was one person in particular, I will say, Ms. Tanya Holland. Yes. <laughs> who, uh, uh, Tanya's great at, uh, I don't know if it's advice. I think she means it as friendly advice, but sometimes it comes across very like, Hey, this is what you got to do. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, <laughs> which is great. I, yeah. I really appreciate it. Um, but I think it must have been in the first year, two years where she was like, you need to write a, you're going to write a book and you need to start now because it takes two years to write a book and you right. don't want to start two years from now because then it's four years from now and that's going to be too long. Right. And I was like, okay, yes, ma'am. How do yep. I do that? And for folks who don't know, Tanya Holland is the Tanya chef Holland, of yes. Brown Sugar Kitchen in Oakland as well. She also has a cookbook, Brown Sugar Kitchen. She does. Um, I think she has a couple cookbooks. A couple, I think she yep. might've had another one prior to Brown Sugar. Um, yeah, she's a great chef and a friend and colleague. So. Yeah. Did you have any obstacles in the publishing of the cookbook? Um, yeah, I mean, I think definitely there's, uh, we did, you know, once we had a proposal and we were shopping it to publishers, um, we did get the, this looks amazing, but we already have an Indian cookbook thing. Um, and you know, my biggest issue with that was there was one, there was one publisher in particular that I won't name, obviously, um, who had another Indian cookbook and this cookbook and, you know, it was also from a restaurant, but aside from those two facts, like my restaurant and Juhu Beach Club and the type of food and ethos and everything that's about, and this other restaurant could not be more different from mm. each other. Like, you right. know, it, it was a very like, you know, fine dining, like tablecloths and like, you know, crazy long wine list, et cetera, right. et cetera. Um, traditional, um, in a way that just was like so different from the sort of fun, irreverent kind of, you know, splashing pink and orange and blasting Drake at nine o'clock at night in the restaurant kind of place. Right. This is more than just a restaurant cookbook though. I mean, you say it's it's a restaurant cookbook, but it's so much of your story too. And in many ways, a memoir, it's sort of a hybrid from a a memoir and a cookbook and like a little bit of a restaurant cookbook too. How did you sort of approach that balance? I see the restaurant and this time in my life, all of that 
is, you know, there's a certain gestalt to it. Like a lot of people like to say, like, why do, why am I a chef or a queer, a woman chef or mm-hmm. a queer chef or, you know, a chef of color? Like, why can't I just be a chef? And it's like, well, cause you're not. And that's not the world we live in. Right. So like, you know, just own it. So for me, all of those things influence the entire thing, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that say like, is there such a thing as being a queer chef or queer food? And, you know, I don't necessarily think that there is one definition of that. Um, but I do think that for one thing that I feel in a lot of ways is not only did I grow up feeling outside of the people around me because of my family being immigrants to this country. But in a lot of ways, I also felt uh, uh, different than the rest of my family. So many people will say like, you know, what does your sexuality have to do with your cooking? Um, and you could apply that to so many different things. Like we talk about it so intensely in our industry when it comes to terroir, um, when it comes to uh, seasonality. Mm-hmm. So why wouldn't the person who's cooking this food have some sort of influence in what their influences and background and their perspective on the world would obviously influence the cuisine. So I feel like all of that goes into it. You talk about the different parts of your identity and how they influence your style of cooking and, and your your work as a chef. You were born in London. You grew up, in, you, you know, moved to Florida, lived in Ohio for quite a while. And you talk in your book about sort of running away, in a sense, from your mother's cooking, right? Like you weren't really into your mother's cooking for a while. Mm-hmm. You, ta- you always wanted to go out and eat at restaurants and mm-hmm. try other things. What was that process like for you to then sort of come back to that cooking and come back to the lessons and things that you'd learned from her cooking and your broader family's cooking? I think it's, I mean, it's, it's very rewarding in a sense that, you know, because, you know, as a teenager feeling like you are not proud of, or don't like the fact that you're different from everybody else still doesn't feel good. You know, you want to feel proud of who you are or what food comes, smells come out of your parents' house or whatever. Um, and so, you know, for me, but if there's so many things I think I mentioned in the book, um, how a lot of times, and I think this is true for a lot of different immigrant cultures that our parents and the generations before us tend to sort of combine uh, things that are cultural with their own ideas of what socioeconomic values and, uh, they, they have mm-hmm. in particular, as if right. those are the same, the values of our culture. Sure. And so for me, it's, it's sort of like being able to come back to, be, you know, just kind of being like, Hey, I am Indian. <laughs> like yeah. just because I, you know, I mean, what, like my cousins would like make fun of, you know, they do, what was like the big joke that my cousins and I would say to each other is like, Oh, you're such a coconut. Like you're so, you know, brown on the outside, white on the inside, this sort of like, you know, you're, you're not Indian enough. And, and what does that mean to be Indian? Because you're like, I don't know, dutiful because you like know how to cook all this Indian food or you speak the language fluently or, you know, in my parents' case, it would always be like, you know, wearing the, perfect, pretty, like Indian outfit to the temple and knowing all of the prayers and like, you know, just a lot of, and then also a lot of gendered dynamics in terms of what the expectations of us as girls were compared to boys in my family. Um, that all kind of gets lumped together. And so to just sort of be who I am in the world, but really be like, that doesn't mean that I'm not Indian. Like I'm right. still very much 
that is such a part of my culture. And so to be able to actually contribute, not just own that, but also be able to contribute to it, right. um, I think is, is super meaningful to me. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Preeti Mystery. Now, we're talking today about Preeti's first book, the Juhu Beach Club Cookbook. It's beautiful. I'm holding it here. Beautifully designed. There, there's wonderful orange and like bright um, neon pink accents throughout. Uh, it's divided into chapters based around Preeti's life and various themes with recipes throughout. And some of the great recipes in here, we love um, the pulled pork vindaloo pav. Pavs are these wonderful little Indian slider-like sandwiches, uh, traditionally stuffed with vegetables. Preeti has a lot of different takes on them. There's a brunch recipe from, from Chuhu Beach Club restaurants that's the dose waffle. It's this hybrid um, of a South Indian dosa with a, a Belgian-style waffle. Um, really fascinating. And then, of course, the Manchurian cauliflower. Um, a traditional recipe, sort of a, a, an Indian-Chinese classic, but one that Preeti had a unique spin on and became the staple dish of Juhu Beach Club, the restaurant. It's cauliflower, it's lightly breaded, it is marinated in this wonderful um, sort of sweet and sour sauce before it's fried. Uh, it has a nice zing, it has a nice heat, it's delicious. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school offering hands-on classes and events for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. You will love the open, airy, and welcoming space, perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from expert chefs. I personally love their wonderfully curated cookbook wall, the backdrop for all of our Salt and Spine episodes. Now, don't miss some of the upcoming classes at the Civic Kitchen on topics like the art of stir-frying and one of our new favorite classes, cookbook writing with Diane Jacob. You can find a list of all of the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now, back to our conversation with Preeti Mystery. You also included a, a small sort of excerpt, not a full chapter, on a day in the life of Juhu Beach Club, the mm-hmm. restaurant. Um, and what a dramatic day it was. It was dramatic. <laughs> I loved it. It's like eight pages of like hour by hour. Never a dull <laughs> like, moment. But super exciting. I think a super interesting look into the workings of a restaurant and the workings of Juhu Beach Club specifically. How would you decide to include that uh, and make that, you know, a relatively significant part of the book. Yeah. I mean, I think it was something Sarah and I were discussing um, and we thought it would be kind of fun. You know, I really like, you know, when I talked about like doing more cartoon stuff, like originally I was like, let's all be cartoons. And I want like, I didn't want it to just be all about me. Like, I'm like, let's have like little stories about each person who works here and like what their specialties are. And they're, you know, like we're all superheroes and, you know, you know, whatever, (laughs) just whatever wacky shit that comes into my head. Yeah. And that's the part I loved the most. Like see, introducing to all of your staff, introducing the reader to all the staff at Juhu Beach Club. It wasn't just like, you know, you show up and, and the mise en place is done and that's how a restaurant works. But like getting a sense of the community that you built at Juhu Beach Club, that was really cool. Yeah, I thought it was fun. And like, I just want people to come on that journey. I feel like that's the one thing that people don't get enough of. Right, right. Now, you don't shy away entirely from politics either in, <laughs> in the book. Um, we, we, the book is new. No, so one we of have my cooks a- actually uh, told me I should run for mayor. Oh yeah, and they—they're only twenty-four. So mayor I was, of Oakland. So I immediately like text a bunch of my friends. I was like, twenty-four millennials think I should run for mayor. Like I am so cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Is Preteen Mystery announcing no. her mayoral no. run on the no. Salt and Spine Never. podcast? No. Okay. Never. Um, but but the book com- came out after the election, after yes. the most recent presidential election. Yes. And there's a moment in the book where you talk about um, on election day, you're actually working with young kids at mm-hmm. the Oakland radio, um, Oakland radio station. Yeah. There's a program there where you're helping them learn to cook and exposing them to new ingredients. Um, and you talk about the process of being with them on that day. The last two years have changed the way we eat, drink, and socialize. If you work in the food and beverage industry, it's time to think about upgrading your restaurant to a square point-of-sale system. A smart POS means you'll never miss a sale, can build customer relationships and loyalty, and ensure diners never order the wrong item with real-time menu syncing. Plus, it even helps you improve what happens in the kitchen. The future needs your restaurant. Get there with Square. Visit square.com forward slash ACAST. And then realizing what had taken place um, later on in the day. Um, how integral did you feel that was to including into the book? I, I don't see how I pers- my worldview is that you can't really extrapolate anything. You know, the personal is political and mm-hmm. like it, it's all political. I mean, I like to say like me, just me cooking the food of my like cultural heritage is like fucking personal. Yeah. Um, and that makes it political and it is a political statement in a lot of ways. So, I mean, for yeah. me, I'm not afraid, uh, you know, I don't think I said anything disparaging about the current <laughs> administration. Um, but yeah, I mean, but we it, saw it, it's, a real- it's a big part of our restaurant. In fact, you know, we've always taken a stand against, uh, a lot of stuff and for a lot of stuff. Right. <laughs> um, you know, when we first started doing the black doll for black lives matter, um, which I think we started doing in, I want to say 2014, uh-huh. you know, the first year we did it, not all of those like white neoliberal people that came to Juhu Beach Club were like comfortable with that at all. Like it was still in that nascent phase where people were like, am I, am I supporting this? Is it a little too radical for me? Like, what's the deal? Um, and so, you know, the first year or two, there were a lot of people that were uncomfortable. Um, and, and not buying just soup, buying soup. That? They were by, uncomfortable by the like fact buying that we, a couple yeah, of soup. Yeah. We had it written on there, black doll right. solidarity soup that a dollar from the soup goes to black lives matter Bay area. Right. Um, et cetera. And, um, it, it was only until I would say like, yeah, probably around 2016, like it took a couple years for people to, you know, all of a sudden it was like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, I mean, there were always some, there's always a sure. few that are, you know, behind something from the very beginning, but you know, it wasn't, uh, the majority by any means. Yeah. Um, but for me, I feel like what, like if we don't like stand up for something, like if anything, for me, it wasn't necessarily about the, like, you know, whether it was $20, $200 or $2,000 that we raised for black lives matter to me, it was also about, uh, just putting it on there. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, the state of California had this thing with the drought, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but when the drought was really bad, they had this thing where like restaurants were not allowed to give people water right. unless they asked for it. Right. And part of the reason was not that they thought that they would just save so much water doing that, but that it, everyone goes out to eat and it was a way to really like educate people, um, about the drought. And so for me, it's like, you know, whether people actually order the soup or not, you know, they might want to support Black Lives Matter, but they're not in the mood for soup. Right. Um, <laughs> but. That it's just a, an opportunity to, like, you know, get your message out. 
Yeah, I think that's so important. Now we're a show on cookbooks, so I have a few questions I want to jump in on um, on the production of your actual cookbook. Um, you made it a little bit easy for me because you mentioned some of your early cookbook influences, at least when you were cooking um, in the '90s. You said you know you're living in the Mission District, you're shopping at Byright, you're mostly cooking vegetarian food, and you said you turned to books like um, William Sonoma Vegetarian, Martha Stewart's Vegetarian, mm-hmm. anything by Deborah Madison. So those were some of your early cookbook influences. Uh-huh. What influences did you have when you were putting this book together? Were there books you looked to to think about how you wanted to turn Juhu Beach Club into Juhu Beach Club cookbook? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, well, Sarah Henry, first and foremost, like... Who's your co-author? Well, who's my co-author was like, you know, throwing every Indian cookbook from a comp set perspective at me uh-huh. and i was like i'm never gonna read all of these <laughs> but i'll flip through yeah <laughs> and make snarky comments you know uh roy roy Choi's book um la sun was one that uh you know i thought kind of hit the right balance similar balance of sort of memoir and story and recipes um there was a, uh, I mean, uh, Mission Street Food as well. I wanted think there to be a certain amount of interactiveness, um, and playfulness and irreverence and not just sort of this pretty pictures and recipes. Um, and I did look at Amanda, Amanda Cohen's book, Dirt Candy Cookbook. Uh-huh. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like the, it's like totally a comic strip. Um, and we had kind of talked for a minute about like, doing more of that and so i you know i think there was one summer i like you know or a couple a week or something i just like dived into that book um to see if that was a, a route we were kind of looking at or how you know you know intensely we wanted to go in that direction or not um how did you decide to structure the book in the way that you did you sort of um structure the chapters around themes or stories or certain moments in your life and recipes mm-hmm. that fit there versus a, a more traditional per se approach of here's an appetizer, here's an entree. Yeah. I mean, I think it sort of fits with our whole ethos, you yeah. know, it's sort of like thematic. Um, and there were, you know, there were certain recipes where we're like, well, this is going here, but it could go there. And, you know, right. I mean, there, obviously there's some crossover, but I think that, because we really wanted to tell so much of the story, um, or memoir, as you put it, like, it made more sense to do it that way than to, you know, just try to slot things into these categories. Because also, our food doesn't necessarily make sense in those categories of, like, starter sure. and entree and dessert like that's not really you know it's our food is very like family style the food at the restaurant was very much like you know we want everyone to share normally the kitchen gets really grumbly when people all order their own individual appetizers and entrees (laughs) we're like "Ah." um (laughs) did you tell them it's we're they're supposed to share right how did it feel to then make a cookbook, which is sort of um, a self-guided journey through your life, right? A reader can sort of pick up and take off anywhere. D- is that something you thought about at all? Like how to sort of take everything and put it in someone's hands and hope they take away what you want them to take away? Um, I think I didn't really think about it until I had recipe testers starting to test recipes. And yeah. then I would see like the things that they would say and their photos. Um, and I'd be like, no, why did they 
do that. Right. <laughs> um, it looks terrible. <laughs> um, and, but then I would be like, oh, maybe I should be more clear about using green cabbage because I just said cabbage and they use red cabbage and now it looks like a big pile of purple mush. Um, <laughs> or whatever. Sure. Um, so, you know, I think I, I, I worked out the kinks of what, of that process through the recipe testing. So now I just feel like it just feels nice when I, you know, whether I get like a tweet or somebody mentions that they're doing something on Instagram and tags us and I get to see what they're making. And it feels really sweet. I, I didn't really anticipate that aspect of it. Like it's one thing to go to bookstores and do different book events, but to just like, you know, I, I didn't really think about the social media aspect of like having people just like tagging us and getting to see like that they're excited and they're making all of these dishes for, you know, a dinner party or whatever. Right. Um, spices play a really big role in the book. Um, you talk about the first time you ground your own spices, made mm-hmm. your own masala and what a difference that made, right? Like you said, the aha moment. The aha. Yeah, yeah. You sit down and have your second bite and you and your wife lock eyes like, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Um, well, you just made that sound so romantic. <laughs> thank you. I'm just <laughs> translating what I, what I gathered <laughs> from your cookbook. Um, but for many home cooks that, that, often feels like an extra step, right? Mm -hmm. The step of going and buying whole spices, Mm -hmm. having to grind them yourself, making your own mixtures. You advocate for that. Why why do you think that's such an important step for home cooks to take? I mean, I think it just makes all the difference. You know, it's like, why... Why do you go to the farmer's market on Saturday morning and get like fresh lettuces that were just harvested that morning or the night before? Like, why do you make sure to go out of your way to go to the butcher that has the grass fed beef that was, you know, raised like 60 miles away to bring it home and douse it in like a box of sawdust that you have no idea how long it's been sitting on the shelf? Yeah. Um, yeah. cause you're making Indian spiced grass fed beef for right. dinner. Um, right. you know, it, it just, it's, it's sort of common sense, you know, I mean, even I sort of said in the part where Anne and I had that aha moment, it, we both kind of looked at each other with this, like, wow, this is amazing, but also duh. Sure. What were we thinking? Sure. Like, of course it is, you know, I mean, so I've had a, a significant amount of people, whether it was, uh, you know, at the restaurant or even when we just had a little pop-up in the liquor store, come up to me and say, I've never tasted Indian food that tastes like this. Or, you know, it's, you know, they're just blown away. And I tend, you know, I, I don't think what I do is rocket science. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just cooking food. So I'm always like, well, why? You know, right. why? How is this so much better than what else they've had? Right. Where else have they been? Um, <laughs> But I, I do think a lot of it is just the freshness. And, you know, when you, when you grind spices, they start to lose their flavor. So once that is past, you know, two weeks, you're just getting a more homogenous flavor. So you're getting this, you know, what people say when they're like, Oh, I don't like curry. And it's like, okay, well, what is curry? Right. First of all, like, what do you even mean by that? Um, but. There is this homogenous taste and flavor that you often get from your sort of like, you know, first generation immigrant, like quote unquote curry house, not in curry spot. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that is due to using convenience, like ready made spice blends. Um, when you put 12 different spices in a masala, you should be able to taste them or what's the point mm-hmm. in putting all of them in there? Sure. 
so I think that you want the nuance and the balance. Like there's, you know, there's things that you're putting in there that are citrusy. There's things that are mustardy. There's things that, you know, have a little bit of like a really piquant kind of punchiness to them. There's things that are adding heat. There's things that are adding a smokiness. Like if you're not getting all of that nuance, what's the point? Right. Is there a particular dish you would recommend someone start with if they were diving in? Um, the one dish I would say that is probably one of the easiest, um, as long as you can source fresh curry leaves is the shrimp curry. Mm, okay. It's, it's really like, it's a Wednesday night. Like you can throw that together really fast. Yeah. It's, it's really fun. It's a beautiful cookbook. Um, Juhu Beach Club cookbook, preteen mystery. And before you go, obviously you ruled out you're not announcing your mayoral bid for Oakland right. mayor yes. here. Um, but what's next? What can we expect from you? You alluded at the beginning that Juhu Beach Club maybe isn't over in a brick and mortar form. Oh, yeah. I mean, I definitely, you know, I would like to have a Juhu 3.0. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure what the timeline on that is. And it would probably, you know, just like from the liquor store to, uh, 51st and Telegraph probably have some evolutionary process. Sure. Um, but in the meantime, uh, I'm doing a lot of events with the book and, um, you know, running my restaurant, Navi Kitchen. It's on the border of Oakland and Emeryville. Great. Um, with Indian pizza. Yeah. Which is delicious. Yes. Uh, and tikka masala mac and cheese. All right. Well, thank you so much, Preeti. We really appreciate you stopping by. Thanks. Wow, what a great conversation with Preeti. Now let's head over to Omnivore Books in San Francisco, where we're catching up with owner Celia Sack in our From the Vault series. This is where we dive into her vast collection of vintage and interesting cookbooks. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey, good. So we just sat down with Preeti Mystery and talked about her book, The Juhu Beach Club Cookbook. I'm hoping you have something to share from your vault with us today. Uh, yes, this is actually a new book rather okay. than an old one, sure. although I do love the old ones. Uh, and anytime you want to talk about Indian cookbooks of old. I'm I'm your woman. Okay, great. Um, but this one is fabulous. It's called Five Morsels of Love, and it's a beautiful book by this woman, Archana Pradalta. Oh, it is and, beautiful. Yes. And she... It's actually written by her grandmother. It, it was a very popular book in India, but never got translated into English. Mm-hmm. And after she died, um, Archana decided to publish to translate this into English. Uh-huh. She self-published it in India. Wow! And just did an incredible job. It's all South Indian recipes, and they are so traditional and correct that I've had. South Indian restaurant owners come in and grab it because they're so excited that these these recipes they've never seen them in print before in an English language cookbook wow. so um, I'm so proud of Archana for having published this and and made it and every time she has family visit the United States they send me books they bring a load with them I feel so bad for them on the on the plane but they always bring a load and ship them out to me from wherever they are in the US oh that's great yeah so a new book but a lot of history there yeah absolutely awesome. absolutely great. well thanks so much for sharing that with us Celia. Happily. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Head to our website, Salt and Spine, to find an excerpt from the Juhu Beach Club cookbook, as well as an exclusive recipe from Preeti. If you like Salt and Spine, please remember to click subscribe and rate and review us. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself with audio support from Nina Ernest. 
Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. If you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and we hope you do, please also join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com slash saltandspine, where you'll find subscriber-only content, cookbook giveaways, and other surprises. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. two years have changed the way we eat, drink, and socialize. If you work in the food and beverage industry, it's time to think about upgrading your restaurant to a square point of sale system. A smart POS means you'll never miss a sale, can build customer relationships and loyalty, and ensure diners never order the wrong item with real-time menu syncing. Plus, it even helps you improve what happens in the kitchen. The future needs your restaurant. Get there with Square. Visit square.com slash ACAST.